Hi there, my name is Corey Dundon. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations, engaging and elevating pediatric occupational therapists. A joint collaboration between SEED, Pediatric Services and Developmental FX. Each week you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only. With that, let's jump in to today's episode. Welcome to episode 12, where today we are going to deep dive into imitation. I'm so excited. Uh, so we have Corey. Hello, Corey. Hey, Michelle. How you doing? Hey, Tracy. Hey, guys. So excited to be here to talk about imitation with you, uh, a topic that I find deeply interesting and compelling and amazingly clinically relevant. So I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are about it and and to share this conversation. We've referenced it quite a few times in the various episodes. I think we started with Praxis. We talked about Mm. it in our one about that Uh, regulation and building of social capacities. It was mentioned exec functioning. It was mentioned uh, so it um, <laughs> really is huge. We've talked about it a lot. So we've decided today's the day to dive in to discover or, or discuss what is it? What yeah. is imitation? What underpins that allow the capacities that allow imitation to unfold? What purpose does it serve? And um, when it isn't firing up so well, when it isn't coming together, um, why might that be so and what can we do about it? So, so much to think about here. So I guess when I think about imitation and the purpose that it might serve, I just have this image of little people, babies even, being really fascinated in their carer and, um, you know, have watching their lips move and, and that they're compelled to do the same as whatever their carer is doing. And it, you know, burgeons into that, um, peekaboo games where initially it doesn't have a context but it's driven by this perhaps being with another and, and copying it without a real schema or, or context to place that in so um and it is a social and motor planning and you know it's got all the things underneath it but it's um perhaps driven by the socialness of it but um how do yeah. you think about imitation Corey? so funny because when if if someone says to me, oh, imitation, as a just automatic response of what do I, what comes to mind, I don't go to the depth of little babies, but that is such a good example. But I, what got sort of triggered off straight away for me was when you're a little kid and you really, you really want to annoy your sibling or your sibling really wants to annoy you or a friend and they start copying you and you're like, stop copying me. And they go, stop copying me. And you're like so annoyed by that. And so I was just thinking of imitation like that, right? Where you literally just do the exact thing that the, that the other person is doing, but that I'm, which is why I'm excited to talk about this today because I know that it's neurologically so much more complex than that. But that's kind of where I first went when I thought about imitation. I was like, yeah, when you do the exact same thing as the other person. But uh, it's like there's so much more to that, to imitation as a neurological concept. I guess it's, it's a neurological concept that we're talking about here, right, Tracy? And it's- yeah, it is a neurological concept. But I think even before we talk about the neurological concept of it, it's it's such a deeply developmental concept. Um, so in in a lot of developmental psychology theories, the concept of imitation comes up. And also in a lot of our treatment approaches, the idea of modeling or direct imitation is pretty infused into the intervention approach. And, and that's really a reflection of the, of the fact that as human beings, we use imitation as a mechanism of learning, as a mechanism of acquiring skill, but it's because we're social learners. Mm-hmm. And so it's that social bit where um, imitation is also like a really fundamental way that we connect and share experience, understand experience, 
uh, observe and see experience. It, it's so there are so many layers to the way that it that imitation is just part and parcel to our socialness, the social experience of being a human. And so, yeah, it's so infused and kind of intertwined into all those layers that it, it, it that it's it's one of those things that um you know you can kind of take it for granted because it just seems like people just imitate and we just do that right when you're with people you get in sync with them you match them um if you go to a gathering of people whether it be um you know, a solemn event or a, or a celebratory event, what you'll notice is that people start to match each mm-hmm. other in their posture, in their gestures, in their word choices, in um, so many different layers. And so it's just this really inherent quality, and it's easy to kind of overlook it. But as soon as you start to say, wait, let's talk about imitation, it's like, whoa, there's so many layers mm-hmm. to talk about. Yeah. So does that set up... Oh, I'm diving in here. Oh, does, I was like, there's so many thoughts already. <laughs> that, it almost feels when you speak about that, because I have that experience. And, and, yeah. and do you know what? In some podcasts, we've used one word, exquisite. I think we smashed exquisite in one word, in one episode. And I think another one was... Um, I don't know. Intuitive. But, yes. And it was like, one of us have said it, and we've all, you know, end up... Using our hands and using the similar words. So I'm not sure what the word of uh, this episode is. is. Let's see. <laughs> but what can but it's a bit pro-social. Like yeah. that's making me wonder yeah. if there's some um, uh, not conscious syncing up um, of people that that is serves a pro-social reason. Do you know if we're all starting to approach and look similar that signals some safety i guess i don't know yeah well we're we're, random no no but like we're um like 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 tracy's saying we're social beings like Mm. so that would make sense that 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 this helps us to connect with fellow human beings and Mm. that that was really a key way we would stay safe right Mm. To, to be able to get in sync with the other human beings around us and to be part of the group. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So in some of the really deep developmental psychology around this, Melinda Carpenter comes to mind. Um, obviously, Andy Meltzoff. There are a lot of um, different developmental psychologists. Jacqueline Nadell, who's a French woman who studies imitation. Um, but uh, a lot of... The work that um, Melinda Carpenter, who uh, studies this in kind of um, non-human primates and then also in children, is that we, we have this push to recognize the familiar other. And so if you have, and we do that through these imitation neural circuits, mirror neuron circuits, and um, actually sensory motor circuits that allow us to notice similarity and difference. And we want to find safe, familiar similarity um, in order to establish our kind of ground. And so it's got this real protective Mm. quality to it where it does establish a foundation for us of, of, oh, I see you and I recognize you and you're like me. You move at the same pace that I move at. You move for the same purposes that I move. You react um, with your emotion the same way that I might react. And there's a familiarity and an affiliation and a safety Mm -hmm. quality to all of that. And then um, also uh, we start to recognize that we can lead each other and that we can create this, you know, kind of lead and follow. And then from that, we realize that if I lead, if I follow you, I might learn something from you and we might then co-create something. And maybe that co-creation is because Um, we need something for survival or something like that. And so imitation has really played a really critical role in our kind of evolution as a species. And 
um, in the world of kind of, you know, evolutionary psychology, there's a lot of study of imitation, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. But for, for our purposes, I think it's good to start to think about how when we say the word imitation, it isn't one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the deeper science, they deconstruct imitation into lots of different bits and parts. But it, it might be helpful for us to think about that. So in your own experience, um, you know that there's a difference between kind of mirroring somebody and just mimicking mm, them yeah. versus um, matching them and learning alongside and, and sharing the action with them, mm. which is really more technically imitation. And then when you catch the meaning of the imitation and you kind of expand on it and make it your own, that goes to a higher level of imitation that is technically referred to as emulation. And so you have this um, span of different skills that sort of start from almost like unconscious mimicry that's more emotional and sensory and motor in nature. you know, there were those early studies that Andy Meltzoff or Meltzoff and Moore published. They were real landmark studies that looked at little babies just several days old. And if they're with a safe, familiar, you know, carer, usually a parent, um, and the parent is making a facial expression, opening their mouth or moving their eyebrows or moving their, their lips or their tongue, the baby will match that. And it feels like this magical moment. And it's part of attachment. It's part of bonding. And it's so powerful and cool. So I just did, I just matched your eyebrows there. Yeah, I don't yeah, know same, if you noticed. Same. Uh, I'm bonding with you, Joyce. As Tracy was moving her eyebrows or opening her mouth, both Michelle and I are kind of doing that thing with you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, see, when we're in sync with each other, you know, you, you can't kind of help but help yourself to imitate and when you catch yourself doing it and you kind of don't want to do it you have to really actively inhibit the response it's it's such a and and that's because of the neurological mechanism that supports it so that mirror neuron system that we can talk more or less about today but i we do have neural mechanisms that kind of activate And so when you get the activation of you're raising your eyebrows and then your brain is like, see what's happening? It, at some point... I was going to help you out. (laughs) Yes, it makes you do the action. And what's also funny is that through intermodal or cross-modal functions, which is kind of how the psychologists talk about that, for us, we talk about that as intersensory integration. But Mm -hmm. we probably even just listening to our words, there's a cross-modal match. And so people may be lifting their eyebrows just when we say it because you can feel the intention. Isn't that right? It's really powerful. That's so interesting. So auditorily, people might be only getting the words, Mm -hmm. but they can feel the motor intention that you might have been doing just purely through the auditory information, which is Uh what you're saying is that in what did you say intermodal yeah intermodal Mm -hmm. matching and that just when you said then if you don't when you become aware that you're looking like tracy (laughs) and you think oh that's embarrassing i can fan her but you know this seems like the next level then i actually have to i notice that i consciously have to work against copying somebody and I feel like I need to disconnect and pull out of that relationship to find my own um, regulation, <laughs> Michelleness. you know, come back to me and then I lean into that again. But pretty quickly, if it's someone I adore, you're doing it again. Yeah. So it's, I get that there's an automaticity to it or oh, I don't know if that's the right neurological word, but you have to work against that neurology yeah. unfolding and really disconnect disreg you know yeah my sink back in my experience of that is um purely traveling overseas and trying not to accidentally adapt the accent yes uh, uh, adopt the accent um because you are like when i was in britain i could feel myself doing that just and then i would be like i'm so sorry i am not trying to imitate you and so that was then my next question tracy was like when does it turn from 
or where what are the qualities that seem to lack when it turns from something synchronous to something abrasive or irritating um like what is the piece when it becomes like mimicking that has a bit of a yeah so what's the key elements there that seem to then move it from that space of familiarity and safety to this is really annoying stop copying me you know like because they're and it's probably a really fine line but (laughs) they're really different experiences so like I just want to figure out those two where 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 that changes i guess yeah so i think that the the change is a little bit fluid but in the demarcation if there you know this kind of artificial demarcation between these levels or phases of imitative capacity um so in that sort of unconscious mimicry sometimes people find that 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 level of imitation is really driven by just the sensory motor contagion and it always has an Mm. affective tone to it so it's an emotional Mm. contagion function and um Mm. yeah so there are whole books written on just that concept of emotional contagion and social is that what underlies um little people like we just mentioned that might open their mouth you know in the same way that their daddy might do that like is that what that is because there's no exec functioning or um perhaps there's motivational bias to be like daddy but um yeah is that what that is yeah that's right that's right and I love how you um are noticing that at that developmental stage the goal probably is to be like to be like the person that you're with and so if that's really the authentic um, goal, that's not very irritating. In fact, it's quite charming mm, yeah. and captivating, yeah. right? Yeah. But if the goal, so so there's this idea of a goal mm. that's kind of connected to this notion of imitation. The the middle state, this imit, true imitation, has a goal, a means ends mm. relationship to it. So um, you have a goal, and you're using. Uh, an action, an, exp- an, an execution, whether that be ex- a facial expression, a verbal expression, a gestural expression, a whole action that you're, you're using. And when you do that, you're doing it because from here, I get to here. So you have this, mm. you know, goal in mind and the action gets you to the goal. Mm. And so little babies have a different kind of goal than you and I do because we have far higher levels of cognition and language and experience and ideas than a little tiny infant does. And so the goal for a baby is real different and it doesn't feel irritating. But if you're, uh, you know, and us, and we're just imitating each other, it would start to be irritating pretty fast um, <laughs> if I was just like on purpose imitating you. If I was, yeah. you know, versus the emotional contagion, which just happens because we're in right. sync together. And so right. we do match each sense. other. We match yes. each other with intonation, we match each other with our gestures, our shoulder shrugs, our eyebrow raises, our head nods, our glances our joint attention all of that we're doing that unconsciously um and as soon as we start to do it on purpose with a goal a means ends in per on on purpose then it's like why are you doing that yeah it feels icky it feels like a withdrawal it's like hang on yeah you just mess with what we had then i feel like that's that's helped me clarify where it goes from pure mimicry that's sort of emotionally driven around this contagion or the intent of the other person and I just end up mimicking you because I'm I'm in that contagion I've caught on to that and I'm just picking that up and giving it back to you to tell you I'm with you and, and then, I want to stay with you yes. and stay with you and stay with you and yes. you know there's safety in this and that we'll come back together yes you know. or you know I'm gonna take that and give it back to you with a slight different twang to it so it annoys you. <laughs> um, so and that's really interesting, Tracy, because you've talked about that the goal developmentally for the baby example that Michelle was talking about is to be like, because at that point 
we want to bond, we want to connect with our caregiver and not in a cognitive way, just wired in innately we want to do that. And so what I thought about was, well, what's after that? Like, so I'm thinking about a three-month-old-ish in my mind where they start to really imitate or um, like they have the actual postural stability and, oh, I mean, there's probably so many things going on, but yeah, they can stay with their caregiver. They can kind of find their midline. They can kind of actually orient and organize and then actively give a motor response that reflects what they're seeing. So there's so much in that, just in that part. I'm like, cause the sensory motor, the perceiving the face, yeah. seeing it, then replicating it, the staying with the attention, the yeah. <laughs> there's like so much going on there. But yeah, then I thought, oh, well, well, wonder what the goal is in terms of imitation for the next developmental phase I mean, skill development. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's skill development, and it's again, you know, it's it's a richer, deeper level of that social connection. So where the three, you know, the three day old is just sort of unconsciously mimicking the tongue movement. By three months, the baby's like, "Do it again, because that was cool," and "Do it again, because I want to refine what I'm doing. I want to actually match you even more." And so you'll see. Um, I have a three-month-old granddaughter right now, and I just was watching her do a lot of imitative play over the weekend. And she is, um, if you stick your tongue out really far, she'll stick her tongue out and then she'll try to do it far. Like, she's really getting that intermodal matching. She knows about... Um, whether it's my lips that are moving or my tongue that are, and she wants to repeat it. And then she wants to share the joyful hilarity of the fact that that just happened and that we just had that occur. And then she can uh, start to have reciprocity already where she imitates you, then she expects you to imitate her. So it starts to have a serve sort of return quality to it. And so it starts to be really much more sophisticated in the social uh, exchange that's happening. And it's so powerful to watch that happen. Because she works out that she can initiate that. Not does she just follow, but she can initiate. uh, um, Have agency. Have agency. Yeah. 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 I, I was just that you thought about exactly the same thing I thought about, Michelle, which is, that is like the start of praxis and the fact that that she can discriminate even lips to tongue to refine the skill and it's just there and even the timing of it like the timing in relation to you you do it and then I do it yes and but the timing of the action where she the tongue goes out and then she juts the chin probably to get it further out, but then back in and then it's your turn. So that's that. That's all part of practice. Timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that we got to practice so quickly, <laughs> even developmentally so early, um, because I feel like this is probably – just more and more and more complex as we move through our developmental phases. Um, and you were talking about emulation, Tracy, as being this sort of higher level capacity of imitation. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder if we can sort of flesh that out in terms of emulation and praxis and all the wonderful things that we were just kind of brain exploding out yeah you know so emulation in practice i think as a as a pediatric ot with that sensory integration framework um as as such a foundation of how i tend to think about things probably i would think of of emulation in practice almost as similar processes um but in the developmental psychology literature and um uh there's, you know, some nice descriptions of emulation. So emulation is really where you you really have an understanding of that means and goal. And when you see a person do an action, you understand their intention. And so if you um, 
have the in, and then you want to you want to achieve the same goal, but you don't have to do it the same way. So what happens mm-hmm. is this is where when we go to learn from each other, um, I'm going to show you how to climb a rock wall or knit or write or draw a picture of a um, a flower or something like that. If you were just imitating, you'd be really constrained because you would be trying to do it exactly the way that I did. And then that would make that actually a lot harder for you. So what you do is you watch and observe. And so our modeling um, is best for kids when we when they have the capacity of emulation, where they can see what we're doing and understand, oh, when I hold on to, you know, that pin on the wall and then I put my foot there that's going to push me up but now I get to use my own body mechanics to do it in the way that feels right to me and I'm not trying to exactly match you and if you watch kids who are struggling with praxis what'll happen is that they can kind of get their needle stuck we use that concept last time more for therapists but it happens for kids when they're struggling with praxis where they overly imitate they they get stuck on doing it exactly the way you did it and then they aren't really being authentic to their own you know biosocial system they aren't being authentic to their own muscle tone or their own alignment Mm. and so really how we have to end up using praxis is we model the intention and the means ends goal but we don't do it exactly we do it in a way that matches what our how our body works how our mind works how our thinking works how our agency works and so emulation is this higher level skill where we where we repeat the thing but in our own way and so it's a much higher level skill Mm -hmm. in it and it takes the the intention of knowing that there's a goal that you're trying to repeat um, or you're trying to accomplish an action because that's a meaningful action and you want to do it, but you don't have to do it exactly the same. So if we, if we get stuck at any of these levels, and just like we know in development that happens is that these higher level capacities come about because of the lower level. So when you're struggling at the higher level, you kind of slide back down and you use the lower level. And so I think about dancing. Like, I've never trained as a dancer. But um, I have a friend who's a really, really phenomenal dancer. So every once in a while, I'll be in a social environment with this friend who's like a phenomenal dancer. And at first, I just sort of am so captivated by, by his affect and his joy of movement that that's what I'm kind of mimicking and then I'll start to mimic the action and move into imitation and it might take me until the last four beats of the song to finally get to the point where okay I got it and I'm going to do my own thing here but it's like that cycle does that make sense yeah yeah I actually thought about um, perfectionism. Yes, that's what it brought up for me. Yeah, and I didn't know if that's... And that it's restricting. It can be really constricting to get. Yeah, or if it's related to this concept of I don't... I And I don't know, it could be a whole separate thing, but it just had a came to my mind was those kids that really... They have to do it the exact way that it's being presented to them. So if you did it a specific way and that they do it, they copy you. So I'm, I'm literally, as I'm speaking, writing the letter A in the air. So if I wrote the letter A and I did it a certain way and they try to copy, you know, if they have a little wobble here or there's a certain thing there, they can get really thrown off by that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I, I was like, is that because they've lost the end goal of just writing the letter A and it's okay, it's an A? Because it's your A, yeah, not because, Corey's A. Yeah. Is, is that connected to this process, Tracy? Totally, totally. And so what can, what can happen is because emotional contagion is a part of mimicry and that slides into imitation and then that slides into emulation. So what happens for kids when they're struggling with that higher level capacity is you see the glimmers or the 
difficulties kind of, they kind of slide back down to these lower mm. levels and so what seems like perfectionism is really affectively charged because they're they're in they're like in it emotionally like i want to do that thing they're they're connected to the means and goal but they aren't quite ready to make it their own. And so they have this insistence on imitation. I have to do it that way. I have to do it that way. And um, so, yeah, I think that it's maybe less perfectionism and more of a, a, a product of how imitation and praxis are, um, are limiting that way. When you can't get it right, when you can't really own it, it, it's sort of frustrating and you mm-hmm. want to have it be exactly right. It's also interesting um, because all of this is really based back in sensory discrimination mm. and, um, you know, being able to really know, like, here's how I move. Here's how I hold the pencil. Here's how, here's what the line is like. And, so when kids are struggling with praxis, we know that that sensory discrimination foundation is likely kind of weak. And so in this um, world of imitation, what we have to do is start to uh, wonder, like, you know, holding on to the goal state, holding on to that perfect, perfect execution. It gives you a sense of security when you can't generate it from your own sensory motor system in a way isn't that interesting yes but you know the flip can happen i'm thinking of a little kiddo who doesn't have great sensory discrim um and so he certainly go like my tendency would be to imitate and you know i'm trying to learn yoga at the moment so i want to imitate and then i add my flavor when i'm thinking oh yeah i've i've got that and then i do my own thing where because his sensory discrim isn't great and he's um when he he doesn't pick up his errors so well so he's um tends towards i'm just going to do it my way um so he's got it he goes to that first rather than really um, fine-tuning it uh, and imitating it really well and then adding his flavour. He's just kind of adapts really by going, I'm doing it my flavour, I see what you're doing, but I can't actually do it. So I'm just going to do it over here my way. But is that is that when they don't have the emotional contagion investment in the end goal? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think he's got a lot of investment in, I just want to have a crack and I know I'm not doing it right and I don't want to let that get in the road. And he, he doesn't have the perfectionism. So he he just keeps changing the plan. Yeah. I mean, I totally know. I, I'm yeah. picturing the same kids because they they know that whatever is being presented to them is is for their own capacity too hard. Mm. As in like they can't get the midline organization or they can't get the planning and the timing and the sequencing and they know that they can't like just from watching it um and so i don't know like he's probably sounds like he is invested in doing and being with you and and experiencing and i don't i don't know he wants to play he wants to play with the ball and he wants the ball to bounce off his knee like i might that's not what we're doing i'm making that up yeah but it's like uh, I'm not going to stand on one foot and yeah, so, put my hands on my head, whatever, yeah. whatever the example is. But it's like, yeah, I'll do it my way. Yeah. Like, so it's, is that where you don't get the errors picked up? Anyway, we're going on a different. No. We're going into praxis, <laughs> but you know, with, without that, um, enough of a lean into imitation and um, error detection and repeating, that you don't get the skillful development, and so having too much of a just going to do it my way doesn't lead to enough accuracy yeah it's well it's really interesting I think for different kids it would be a different reason right but if we think about the process of praxis that includes like you know here's my idea now very often the idea comes from deferred imitation I saw people throwing balls and I want to be a ball thrower so sometimes ideation comes just from pure creativity. 
but most of the time it comes from deferred imitation. You know that there's the possibility of this action. And so in that, there's this internal representation. It's like a schema um, mm -hmm. that you're holding on to as the comparison so that when you do the act, you go through the process of planning and execution, and then you monitor. And you monitor to the what was it that I was trying to do here? I was trying to throw the ball, or I was trying to be in downward dog, or I was trying to climb the rope wall. And then if the thing you did doesn't match what you thought you were going to do, which is true for the writing the letter A, or it's true for balancing or whatever, some kids are going to respond by, I have to be exactly how my mm. idea was. Other kids are mm. going to be like, I'm never going to get that idea, so I'm just going to keep randomly changing it because it's too hard for me to get that efferent copy. It's too hard for me to get from idea to matching the copy to get the mm. comparison data. And lots of times that's true for kids who have really weak body schema because they mm. they don't get good feedback and so it's like oh, yeah I, I couldn't match it and whatever it's also um for kids who have really poor body-based working memory where mm. they they think they're doing the act but then they don't actually really remember what it was that they were trying to do so they just <laughs> change it because then it's like yeah whatever <laughs> and so kids like that can look a lot more impulsive and kind of random and less um, able to repeat skillful action. And, you know, all of us only improve through repetition and error correction and, and facilitating that learning. And so, yeah, I think for different kids, it's different. And that's why it's so fun to talk about this because for every single clinician, one of the journeys is to really fine-tune your observations so that in those moments you're like really like tuning into what is it for that child versus that child that's driving that kind of what seems like kind of random behavior or silly behavior or just disorganized ability to repeat or to develop higher level skill and then when you start to observe it through this lens and you're like, hmm, what's interrupting imitation? Now, imitation is such a robust skill that if it's not available in a really full way for a child or an adult, then you wonder why. What's going on mm -hmm. there? Where is that difficulty coming from? And then yeah. we can try to rework on that to fill in the gaps to make it easier yeah mm. i was yeah do you have thoughts i've got a gazillion <laughs> thoughts i was just wondering about the two kids that we or situations that we thought of which was mine was the child wants to write the a in the exact same way and yours was the child's like oh i can't get that so i'm i'm kind of gonna i'm just gonna do it this way mm. and i thought when you were talking just then tracy i thought well, it's almost like those two kids could have a similar underlying yes. gap or challenge, but the behavior is, a, it's, but they the way that they've coped or responded to that is a different behavior. Mm. So in, in our situation, they have the, because earlier I thought, is that just not investment in the angle? But your child is totally invested in the angle. Mm. He really does want to do that. So, And so does the other child, but the responses to that and the ways that they cope with the gap of not having the, discrim the discrimination and the praxis to actually do the end goal, to ha then they outlay different behaviors. So that's really interesting because it's not always going to be one behavior that reflects a similar underlying capacity that's, a, that's challenging for each child. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly yeah. right. And that's why, you know, we, we don't want to focus on the behavior. We want to focus on the underpinning because that's how we're going to improve it. That's, yeah, it's really true. And, mm. and praxis shows, dyspraxia, apraxia shows up in children and adults in all different kinds of varieties. But yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. <sighs> You go, Michelle. So we, <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, for me, the idea or um, 
the capacity of imitation illustrates for me um, this the spirit model, for example, because for me it requires um, all the different domains um, to be available so that postural system so there's some stability in the core the neck the head and the eyes to really um, focus on uh, the thing Uh, it's the uh, regulation and that burgeoning social capacity to in, in that motivational oh not yet motivational but you know that being with another and staying with another and sinking physiologically with another uh, and, and doing it for long enough or repeating it for long enough that you get the information that you need. It's the um, the motor planning, the praxis where it's like, okay, I've, I've got my eyes on and I really want to be with you and I'm staying with you, but yeah, how, how, where are all the elements? It's, it's that exact function of the attention that I'm going to stay with you intentionally um, and then I'm going to have, you know, the working memory, the visual aspect of it, the error detection, the, you know, the feedback and repeating. And, and it just requires all of those underlying capacities. Did yeah. I forget anything? No, no, but I, we, it's so true because we, in the examples that we've talked about today, we have danced across literally every single area that we've talked about so far. So just in the three month or the really fresh babies, the three month old babies, we were talking about the ability, the imitation, that ability, how imitation allows for some or not allows for, but really contributes to this process of bonding. Right. Mm, So we've started straight away with social emotional development. And then, but before that I thought, you know, a three month old has actually done some postural development. Mm. So we've gone way back over there and we've sunk into the postural stability, but if you think about the three-month-old, they've also built their capacity to regulate. Mm. So we've already danced across all of the lower route systems in the brain around just this one thing, which is imitation. And mm. then suddenly we're like jumping up into praxis and executive functions. Because like you said, mm. now if I'm Michelle's little friend in the treatment room, I have to organize my attention and shift my attention to Michelle and sustain my attention on Michelle so that I can take in the game that she's or the activity that we're playing. And then I can sustain that my ideas on that and organize my own body and body schema and planning to then try and replicate it. And it's really mind blowing. (laughs) And then I want to put the flow for me, I guess, in amongst it all. And this is where I get all deep and personal and gooey. (laughs) You know what it's all about. about. We want to come into the, for me, I believe that we want to come into the fullness of who we are and, and add that flavor. So that's for me feels really, you know, even in Maslow's hierarchy of need, I guess, I really think that um, embodiment or empowerment of, of, of self, you know, is that flavor that you were talking about with emulation that it, it drives us to come back in, that we notice other, but then we make meaning of it and, and put our, our oneness into the thing to, I don't know, it, create Facebook or create it, whatever we're well, going to do with if, all our brain explosions. If, yeah, like if you, if I think about emulation of another therapist, like if you see the way that they they got the child to the goal so the the they're working with a kiddo and there's something that's not quite going on and then this therapist was able to do whatever it was in their therapeutic toolbox um or therapeutic itself that got that child to this adaptive capacity that was the aim of whatever was going on, you as a therapist can go, oh, I see how they got to the end goal and I see the how, the way that they got there, but I have, I can emulate that in a different way mm. that matches me as a therapist and I have the capacity to do that because when you first start treating, you really almost start with imitation. Yes. You imitate what other therapists do and then you but you haven't quite got the whole concept of well um these are the bits and the parts that kind of get me to the end goal or and I'm really invested in the end goal but I don't know if you know if I haven't got the capacity yet to do that as a therapist I'm just going to imitate other therapists but as you start to build your 
depth in clinical knowledge and skill, you can see, I know where the end goal is, but I don't have to get there the same way Michelle does. I can get there this way because I have, I have like the embodiment of the schema, I guess. Is Mm. that, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I love it. I think that's exactly right. And, and truthfully, when you first are learning a handling technique, let's say, you know, you learn it through imitation, but right away, it's like how you are in touch contact with the child that you're using a handling technique, your muscle tone, the size of your hand, everything is different. So the physical properties that you bring promote your own ownness, your own unique qualities, right? And so, so much of this is that when we say embodied, you know, we really want each of us to just feel like we can accomplish the meaningful things in our lives. And so for, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And, and also when you try to imitate the other person right away, you'll start to feel like, well, I can't do it the way you're doing it because it doesn't feel like me. And so there's kind of a push, a motivation to emulate, a motivation to use praxis and to use your relationship with whoever it is that you're interacting and not to just imitate it rotely because it doesn't feel authentic. It it doesn't feel creepy the way that that copycat game does when we're little kids, Mm. but it doesn't feel authentic. So you do, we do have a press, a desire to make it our own. I'm interested in this idea of emulation because I think I was a little perfectionist girl who repeat, repeat, and that it's taken me until 40 to start emulating (laughs) when I come into the fullness of myself and realize that I can be perfectly imperfect and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I've learned it at the ripe age of 40. However, (laughs) I'm sure there might be other people that uh, start to move into, you know, this developmental availability um, to move from in imitation into this prior to 40. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I imagine that um, for all of us, there's this kind of like, there's probably a higher level of imitation that is like authentic expression of your own selfness that is a later developmental skill that all of us struggle to kind of come to. But, you know, little tiny kids, they start to understand goal and they start to do things in their own way, um, even even towards the end of the first year of life. But really around 18 months, I think, is really oh. when you start to see this big shift. And um, and then and then that, that shift gets richer and deeper and deeper and deeper all the way through the rest of our lives, honestly. So... Mm. You know, but little kids, they'll start to have an an understanding. And, and really, I think, you know, Piaget was the person who talked about this idea of, of um, deferred imitation. Mm-hmm. So we start to see that in that, you know, preschool age becoming richer and richer and richer, where kids don't just imitate, but they really do start to kind of make it their own. Um, and so you can think about, like, little preschoolers where they're... Um, you know, they're playing in the sandbox and one is digging like the dump truck guy and the other one is digging like they're an animal digging and the other one is sort of digging on their own because they just are digging in their own way and they're all actually kind of imitating the same skill but they're then they're adding the narrative and the story and the pretend and so through that language development and cognitive development emulation gets richer but language development and cognitive development depend on imitation. 
um, so we have to really be able to imitate um, to start to unfold those other skills. And so you'll see in early developmental curriculum for kids who are struggling that imitation is often um, a focus of, of intervention. The problem can be that it can be really inauthentic where you're just drilling kids to sort of like clap your hands because I clapped my hands on command. And that isn't really authentic imitation or emulation. So the there's, there's really a, a big focus right now in good intervention to try to make it a lot more play-based and a lot more about what is the means and goal? What is it that we're sharing? Mm -hmm. What is it that we're doing together? How does your body move? How does your mouth move? How does your whole being mm -hmm. move? And, and why does it move? And, and what, look what happens when we do this together. Um, and having it be a shared experience because, you know, in imitation, it's, it's with a partner. You, you don't imitate without a per partner. You have to have the, the source material that you're copying. Um, and so tuning into that and then playing with that and creating reciprocity in it is such a beautiful uh, experience. And it's really fun to work on this. But when kids are struggling with it, you really feel like they, they're not getting it. They're not getting that their hand can do what my hand can do, that their face can do what my face mm -hmm. can do. Um, the other thing that I think is pretty interesting in the early development of imitation is that little kids, if I raise my eyebrows because I'm being silly and I'm flirting with them and playing and, and then they do it back, they don't have to see their own face to match it yeah. because they can match it. So that's the, that's the contagion and that's how mimicry helps you to build sensory discrimination and awareness. It's really different than doing something with your hands that you can see. Mm -hmm. So I can see my hand open and close. I can see my hands clapping. And so I can monitor that and, and, uh, observe it and modify it and become more skillful when I can see it. So there is some really cool research that talks a little bit about how how different imitation skills are if you can see what you're imitating versus if you can't see what you're imitating. Right. Yeah. So are you I was just thinking about the kids that love the mirror. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, um I was just is that that whole I can see it so I can figure it out? Yes. That's exactly right. That's is that exactly related right. to that again? Back to body schema discrimination of it is. my eyebrows up, my eyebrows are down, my mouth is open, mm -hmm. my tongue is out, my tongue is in, my cheeks are puffed out, or whatever. If I don't have That's great right. schema or somatosensory feedback, then if I can visually see it, I can sort of. Are they just? Are they trying to get those things to what come together? Those two black. Mm -hmm. That cross modal yeah. matching. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh -huh. We also have to um, give them some space to do that, um, which is that reciprocal um, component, I guess. Where I'm um, when you were talking earlier, Tracy, about um, you know when it might come in for a younger child. There's just that stage of you know. My own kids were like, I do it, I do it. So, you know, you'll help them button up their shirt, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And then they just get to this stage where it's like, I do it, and they want to dress themselves or whatever it is. So it's just that I do it and I'm going to do it with my flavor and that we need to give the space in real, real life, but yeah. in, in therapy to be like, oh, have a look at, you know, whatever. We're doing this together and then there's a – almost like a allowing of them to add their flavor so that we're not doing real splinter skill copy me yeah. copy me to a t that there's this sense of yeah you can do it you yeah. know you go you practice that you try it now your turn um so then and that we allow that that if they you know, it just depends what yeah. the goal is. But if it's really initial skill development, it might be that you might allow them to have the buttons not quite done up, you know, in yes. order. Yeah. But then eventually when they've got that, I do it and I do it with my flavour and that, you know, more motivational drive that will have the buttons done up, 
in the correct order and but even um more basically than that michelle like you were saying in the therapy space um say it's it's even more simple than the button thing it's just that they start to try to figure out how to move their face to match your face right and we then slow ourselves down yes for the systems to come together for the response to happen so you know i wait i give 10 seconds or however it is however long it is that your nervous system needs to sync up your somatosensory discrimination processes with your motor action system to plan out how to move my face like you so that I can then have this game continue on it you know as in it can be that simple as well I actually even went further back to that um the episode where we talked about the um regulation and the um you know beginning of that social capacities um where I was with that little kiddo and and we were just trying to sync, you know, regulate. I was trying to, you know, slow my breath rate. Um, you know, you know, we weren't yet at joint attention. So it was really like I need to imitate and slow down and allow him to sync physiologically with me. Yeah. Um, physiological imitation yeah (laughs) yeah which is you know that co-regulation piece I really needed to to tune down tune down and stay with and allow and and just hang on before any you know we we weren't even having joint attention at that point which is I guess part of that anyway oh it's just interesting because in treatment like if we're thinking about treating this so if you've got a kid that's not very robust in their ability to plan out and I guess imitate or replicate the action or the game in the way that you are I mean it's so hard to have like a set way that of of approaching that because in one example Michelle's kid has the idea of the game but can't figure out how to do their move their body but they have a high high enough cognition that you might then get curious about like I wonder if we could do it this way or that way or oh mm. let's let's video it let's watch ourselves I wonder what happens like what does it look like you know there's there's that potential capacity and then way back in a whole another situation you've got a child like you said Michelle who's not even or is just maybe just starting to be able to get synchronous or sustain their ocular motor control and midline enough to stay with you for a set period of, I don't know. Well, my kiddo doesn't even have that. No, so it's just really just the next kiddo, right? Yeah. Who might have, might have that capacity. And in that moment, I'm not going to talk about, I'm not going to talk to that child because at this point there's no language here, but I'm going to tune myself up or down depending on how much time you need to sync up your, somatosensory system with your motor action planning and praxis system so that you then can do the end goal that I can see that you want to do but that your not your capacity is still emerging in that so I have to be able to give you the time and the space and set you up to then have success to do that that's exactly right and the idea of um we're here together some for some kids that just takes a long time for your presence to be salient enough that then when you have a shared exchange that matches that that salience resonates and is strong enough right um and so in in some of the really early work i know you know there's this kind of focus on increasing the salience reducing the competition of other things so that you're really more available and um and you you're staying co-regulated enough that then as you increase your action or your action on an object of of shared meaning or of shared attention or you increase your affective tone or whatever it might be that that the child is like oh that was that was interesting that was interesting so that orienting response to that was interesting has to be present for imitation to ever even be 
possible. And so we're, we're really going back to really foundational sensory discrimination, orientation, shared moments of salience. And from that, then we can start to have that be interesting. And from interest, we can start to build into imitation. But for some kids, that's a slow journey. Because that that imitation, you need the attentional system and, you know, that motivation to, hey, do that again. That that And, and we want them to do that rather than us. So that, oh, give it to me again, you know. It's so fascinating that it all comes, kind of has to rely on that ability to tune in and orient and organize my nervous system to find that thing meaningful to me to then go to, Oh, I think I want to try doing that the way that you did that. And so obviously in, in the social system, we come wired to finding um, our parent or carer, whoever it is, that's the person engaging us. We come wired to want to be interested. We're interested in that from the get go typically. Um, And that way we want to imitate. We want to, we want to get in sync. We want to imitate. And so it's interesting because when that gets disrupted, Mm. you know, for whatever reason, it it has such a, like this, just so many things that that lays upon, upon, on top of like. (laughs) For, for so many reasons, because it could be the infant's, um, individual differences, yeah. their profile. It could be the environment. Um, yeah. You know, it, it could be the carer's availability, yeah. so that that they're available for that nurturance and the um, the environment that allows that. Like it, it's internal and I guess external forces that need to come together, so that these two parties, two people that are available, um, for that to even have a possibility. Yeah. And it's cool that we get to play around with the different components in treatment to see well, which part of that, if if the sensory motor piece is the hardest for the child. So loud, unexpected sounds disrupt that, then it's like, great. Like, you know, you can figure out how as a therapist to mitigate that or reduce your tone of voice. Or if it's, you know, their postural tone is poor then how do I support their tone to allow the thing to come together or if it's you know just organizing the spatial envelope okay how do I get them into a space that allows it's so interesting that and and you know uh, I've it's been said so many times I've heard lots of my favorite mentors say this but if it's not you know if it doesn't work it's an assessment if it works it's treatment you know you're always trying to figure out what 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 works and what changes you can make to allow the capacity to emerge. So it's really, that's why I love this work because it's like, Oh, Mm. I have an understanding of all the different components that I might be able to tweak to then see if I can have this be more adaptive, more connected, more functional and to see the child emerge in themselves and the capacity that they're wanting to be able to do. I also think that the invitation to do this kind of deeper clinical reasoning really think about things developmentally. So if imitation is this conduit capacity, it's a skill that kind of um, ends up being so essential for every other thing that we end up developing. Um, One of the things that's interesting is that you want to think about what's the down, what's lower than imitation, like you're doing um, in all of those beautiful examples you both just gave. So what are all the different things that might be disrupting this? But then also in the, in the higher level direction, what is it that kind of um, connects to that child's developing profile? Mm-hmm. So for one child, you know, imitation for the purpose of Uh, social interaction. For another, it may be imitation for the purpose of sound generation and vocal quality and eventually talking. For another child, it could be to have mastery over gravity. And for another child, it could be to be able to play with that ball over there. Um, And so imitation is connected to all of these other capacities. And so it isn't just the rote my body does what your body 
It's my body does what your body does, right? It's my body can do what your body does for this cool reason. And so sometimes um, for some kids, we have to fill things in by going lower and figuring out maybe it's the muscle tone that's making it really hard for them to figure that out. But for another child that has low muscle tone, it could be juicing them up that ball skills are so fun. And if you, if your body and my body start to be in coordination together, you're going to be able to accomplish that. So I also think that, you know, imitation is the conduit, but it isn't always the thing that we're actually practicing. Sometimes it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This underlies as a principle of yeah. following the child's lead. Like this yeah. is why it's not that we're racing around the room, but <laughs> it is that it, it provides that motivational pull that might elevate them up into the next capacity and not because we want to be nice and let them be the boss. Of the yeah. Room. <laughs> well, it just comes back to that whole affective tone and motivational system being the glue between the motor system and the sensory, you know, really being, and sometimes being able to pull those two together just because I'm so interested in this thing. And then I'm assuming then Tracy, that that would, if we start to be able to do that, that that would build the neural pathways around that, those capacities potentially to then maybe be able to generalize across more environments. So say if, yeah, with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So some people, um, you know, I think Sally Rogers sometimes, who's a mentor of mine for a long time, she would often say that, you know, sensory motor skills within it are one of the most vital active ingredients of imitation. But it's that affective connection that's the reason that you do it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh. Well, that's probably the perfect place for us to finish up and wrap up today's discussion. We have loved it. We've gotten deep. We've gotten engaged. We hope you guys have found it wonderfully intellectually stimulating. And we can't wait to see you guys or talk to everyone next time. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Thanks so Trace. Much, you guys. Bye. Bye. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Seed Pediatric Services and Developmental FX. For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com, or catch us on our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us for this episode. Take care, and we'll see you next time.